Today's Galazzo reacts to Juve Ajax and takes a look back at the last time the old lady actually won this competition, 1996, when Pinturicchio and co met the Dutch masters and gave themselves a real shot in the arm. All that, plus the latest Serie A news, and are Juve about to blow the title too in Golazzo? Momentous midweek in Turin, and joining us on Wednesday morning is Gabriele Marcotti. Morning, James. And on the line from the foot of the Alps, James Horncastle. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning to you, James. You were at the Allianz Stadium Tuesday night to witness that master class from the young Ajax. I was indeed, yes. Um, very impressive they were in the second half, um, producing... Some scintillating passages of play, um, which I think we've become gradually accustomed to over the course of this competition. And Juventus could do nothing but hold their hands up at the end. I think it was quite revealing how Andrea Agnelli, the president, came out afterwards, Max Allegri, all the players, and said they can have no complaints. Ajax completely deserved to go through. And Juventus, I think what was really disappointing is... I mean, if you look over the course of the two legs, apart from the, the two Ronaldo headers... They never really troubled Onana in the Ajax goal. And I think what we saw were the, were the limits of this style that Juventus have, and particularly the limits in midfield. Um, because when it came to, to try and beating that first line of, of Ajax's press so often, particularly in the second half, they were just unable to do it. And the scoreline could have been so much worse than, than 2-1, Gab. Yeah, it's, it's a funny one because... Allegri pointed out afterwards that, you know, Ajax scored three goals and basically two and a half of them were essentially defensive mistakes. But the thing is, even if they defended perfectly, you then taught up the number of chances that Ajax created. Either they finished badly or Szczesny made a great save or that incredible Tadic one where he's wide open instead of shooting on goal, he decides to take one more pass Wenger style um, or indeed the the one where, where Pjanic makes that that tremendous recovery I, I was watching the on, on Sky Italia the, the post game which is pretty darn good because you got Fabio Capello Billy Costa Curta Ale Del Piero Paolo Condò and then Andrea Pirlo who's actually the most boring out of all of them although probably the <laughs> coolest um, and they made the point and, and they asked Allegri you know how's it possible that over four halves of football for three halves arguably you were pretty much even but then you had that, that 20 minutes, that half hour, where you were absolutely annihilated. And Juve didn't have a passage of play or an equivalent period where they were on top, where they had Ajax on, 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 on their back foot. And I think they went all in to bring in Cristiano in the summer. They saw him as a missing link. And financial fair play, believe me, is a thing. They're in a situation where they've basically mortgaged the house to get Cristiano. I mean, Marco Iaria, who's sort of Gazette de los Sports kind of um, finance guy, he sort of estimated that between lost revenue from advancing further in the competition and, and, and other, you know, home gates and whatever, they were looking at, you know, at a loss of 30 to 40 million. On top of that, there's going to be a hit, obviously, commercially between winning it and, and not winning it. You know, you can't go and say, all right, you know, things didn't work out. Let's go and, and, and change everything up and, and have a rebuilding year, transition year, because Cristiano, rightly, doesn't do rebuilds at his age. So 
it's still going to be a team that's built to win here and now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the difference is if the issue is, and I think, and I agree with James, you know, I, th- I think, you know, there, there was a sluggishness to them. They, they did kind of look old and, and whatever. The question is, how do you, how do you get around that? How do you improve that while also balancing the books? You only have so many saleable assets. Right. Should they have been on dope this time, do you think, James? <laughs> look, I mean, I think we're going to see a big overhaul in the summer. Um, I, I think they will look to recoup some of the money that they they invested uh, last year, although we've already seen this, and this has caused some controversy in Italy, that the amount of money they've been able to pull in for the likes of Mandragara, Emil Aldero, Alberto Ceri, who's at Gallery, all these these no-name kids who are actually pretty good, but they're getting 20 million each for them. I think it'd be very interesting to see what happens with the likes of Buster in the summer, with Alexandro, with Kadira, even though those last two guys have, have signed new contracts recently. I mean, all this week, um, it's been, oh, look who's coming to town. Ryla's here. George Mendes is here. They're going to be talking about João Felix and all these kind of players. I, don't, I struggle to imagine how they can afford those guys, given what Gap has just outlined in terms of their, their financial situation. I also struggle to see how those guys are the, you know, what they are missing um, at the moment. Because, to be honest, what's been very noticeable both in Amsterdam uh, and last night, you know, when it comes to being able to dominate the game through possession, being able to hold on to the ball high up the pitch, um, being able to break down teams with you know, sophisticated passing patterns, they just don't have anyone other than Miralem Pjanic. Um, you know, Emre Chan, Matuidi, those guys can't really do that. Um, so, you know, how they, they go about finding someone else can, who can basically come and, and add something to that to, to their game in that respect, I think I think is something that that is missing. And you know, in addition to you know the defence that they've built so much of their success on over the last few years, Bonucci, I, I think. I mean, Gab has raised this on a number of occasions. Bonucci, I just don't think is is really fit for purpose anymore. They're the same player that he was. I can understand them bringing him back from a, uh, a dressing room experience point of view to fill the gap that was left by Buffon, but it's been very disappointing. And again, last night, I mean, he was playing um, on, on the wrong side, not his favourite side, because Rugani was playing. Rugani did very well in the first leg. But again, the playmaking that we usually see from Bonucci at the back was kind of you know mitigated because he was on that on that side. And I think they might have to look at this and think, well, it's only getting so far. Juve have been bad all season. Regular listeners will know. I mean, not. And you can say, well, but look, they're running around with Serie A. Serie A must all be pants. And yeah, there's obviously issues with, uh, with teams, as, as there have been. But I just think this season is a season that Juve really got extremely fortunate domestically. In a, in a whole bunch of games, what games... Have you seen Juve play well against top sides this season? Atletico Madrid. Atletico Madrid, Napoli. Yeah. There's maybe a couple others where they went and they flattened them. Whereas I feel like last season, you know, obviously they had the wobble at the end and it was a lot tighter, but I feel like last season this was just a much better unit. And I know it sounds crazy that you can add Cristiano and get worse. Well, sometimes that happens. Look at the Sprillier at Newcastle. This is true. This is true. And you can go back and listen to Atino, Aspria Golazzo, which I heartily recommend. It is worth agreeing with you that they were up against a particularly awesome, a vintage Ajax side. All right, so just one Italian team left in Europe. Now, Napoli, who trailed by two goals to Arsenal from the first leg at the Emirates. Before we let you go, James, what do you think their chances of a comeback are on Thursday? 
I think they can turn it around. I mean, we've seen Arsenal's away record and they've been kind of fortunate that they, they've had the second leg off more often than not at the Emirates where they've been able to correct defeats to Ren, defeats to Bati Borisov. And, you know, I think we all know that Napoli are a much better side than, uh, than those two. Um, so I think Napoli can still progress in this competition. Um, so, so I'm actually relatively confident. James Horncastle in Turin. What do you think, Gab? Napoli 2-0 down for the first leg at the Emirates? I was at that game. Arsenal were fantastic in the first half of 45 minutes. Napoli were terrible. But as James said, Arsenal away from home have their issues. Um, they were so, so lucky on Monday night against Watford. So, yeah, I, I obviously Arsenal are favourites because a two-goal lead still a two-goal lead. But um, I agree. I maybe give Napoli a 40% chance. Campionato di calcio italiano. You're listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. Last time on Galazzo, we were discussing Roma and we left things with them losing the then European Cup final at the Stadio Olimpico in Rome to Liverpool in 84. The next time the European final would be held there was a balmy early summer evening in May 1996, it was, when, guess who, Juventus and Ajax were facing for the Champions League final. But it was also the time of this. And while in the UK they were all vibing to that, in Italy, how about this from those Backstreet Boys? And against that kind of musical backdrop, two teams taking the field at the Stadio Olimpico. Ajax, who were the champions of Europe, who had conceded only two goals on the way to this final, scoring 21, who beaten another Italian side, Milan, in the Champions League final just the year before, 1-0 in, in Vienna. Uh, who were facing, though, a Juve team who, am I right, Gab, were kind of regarded as the gold standard of a, a well-constructed European side. Yeah, they had this incredible uh, mix of quality and athleticism. I mean, there was almost a, a distinction, you know, between teams who played and teams who ran. And, and if you were bad, then then you ran. That Juve side was the team that could run and could play. Wonderfully put together by by Marcello Lippi, who I think also had the great merit of going to you know quote unquote quality players like Ale Del Piero and Angeluca Vialli. I mean, Angeluca Vialli was always a hard, an athletic hard worker, but sort of saying, like, all right, we're going to play three strikers. The third guy's going to be that weirdo with the white hair. Don't mind him. But you guys, if you want to have three dudes up there, you guys all have to make this work so we can keep our balance. And, and they did. They embraced it. Mm. They were a team that always had a lot in their locker as a court case was subsequently to establish. But we'll, we'll touch on all of that later. It's a, it's a story that I think is still close to a lot of... Ajax Hearts, but those lineups, these are the starting 11s on the 22nd of May 1996. Edwin van der Sar in goal for Ajax. Their backline, Winston Bochada, Frank de Boer. How do you pronounce Sonny Siloy? Sonny Siloy. Siloy, okay. Danny Blind, Edgar Davids, Yari Lippmann, Ronald de Boer, and up front, Kiki Musampa, who I must admit I had forgotten, <laughs> Nwanko Kanu, the legend, and Finity George. Juve lined up against them with Peruzzi. 
a back four of Pesotto, Ferrara, Chiro Ferrara, Viecawad, and Moreno Torricelli. Didier Deschamps was in midfield alongside Paolo Sosa and Antonio Conte. And how about this for a front three? Gianluca Vialli, that weirdo with white hair, and Alessandro Del Piero. Wow. So the whistle blows, and in a marked contrast to what happened this week in 2019, it was Juve who got in Ajax's faces immediately. There's um, Torricelli, the legend, that kind of fresh down from La Pietà, Christ figure, rough-hewn, hand-carved out of some old bit of timber. An amateur footballer into his early 20s who supported himself as a carpenter, mm-hmm. playing for, among other teams, the legendary Juve Domo, is in Juve Domo d'Ossola, from the hamlet of Domodossola in the north of Italy, which happens to be near my summer house. Right, and the legend always was that he was playing for a works team when they took on Juve in a pre-season friendly and impressed Trapattoni so much that he acquired his rights for the equivalent of about £16,000. Torricelli went on to become one of the the stars of that Juve. I mean, one of the legends of that Juve team. Gepetto. We read off all the names. There's, There's tremendous names, but I would invite you to look at this starting 11 and ask yourself, who on this team can pass and pass well and pass creatively? I would submit Paolo Souza, obviously. I mean, talk about, you know, matinee idol, the guy could do whatever he wanted. And obviously, Del Piero. The other guys, this is a blue-collar team. I, I'm, not, I, I'm not suggesting Antonio Conte and Deschamps were, were, were bad players, but that that's what made things so differently. You know, that, that was sort of the, the, the contrast um, not so much in technical ability, but in, in the way they expressed it. Even the defenders, you know, I mean, Torricelli you've covered. Vierco, poor guy, tremendous, but he was also about 50 years old at the time. And, you know, Ciro Ferrar, another guy who really was a proper defender. Bisotto could put in crosses, but, you know, never beat a guy. So you put these things together, you know, this really was kind of you know, the the triumph of the hardworking mm. athletic side, and and that's also with you know the little cherries on top that that were um, that, that was Del Piero, and obviously Vialli and Ravanelli who who could finish, but you know you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily call them you know that those creative exciting players, and contrast that with the guys on the other on the other side for Ajax, and and it's no contest. Right, eight seconds in, Torricelli launches himself in, and Bojardi lets him know he's in a game. The first touch from Alessandro Del Piero, he's basically bombing down the wing and he's got Edgar Davids marking him tightly. And the ball comes, he basically backheel volleys a pass across to some Juve teammates. So, yeah, he could service his companions. And and, and this was was pre-injury Del Piero as Mm. well. And obviously Del Piero continued to be a phenomenal player afterwards. But what Del Piero could do back then um, in, in, in terms of, of technical ability, in terms of creativity, he really played with a, with a freedom. And the freedom that was afforded him because he had, you know, the two other strikers, like I said, Viali and Ravanelli, I don't think anybody, well, especially Viali, would ever fault the effort that they put in out there, the, the, the leadership, the strength. 30 minutes in, Juve's pressure, Juve's getting in their face attitude pays off when De Boer and Van der Sar fail to understand each other and Ravanelli takes advantage and puts Juve in the lead. Peruzzi's making some brilliant saves but just before half-time he gets caught out when a free kick 
Peruzzi seems unclear on how to deal with it, so he basically fists it away. It bounces of Ciro Ferrara and Yari Litmanen steals in and puts it away. The thing about Angelo Peruzzi was that he was obviously an atypical footballer in the sense that, I don't want to use the words, the, the fat goalkeeper, but... He, he was built big. He was a big guy. It's, it's like in, you know, you remember in uh, Pulp Fiction, we say like, you know, the dude Samoan. You know, Peruzzi is like sort of like Italy's Samoan. Yeah, but he's um, not Neville Southall big. He's just like a, a big unit. Yes Massive. and no. I mean, Paolo Di Cagno writes in his excellent autobiography, which right. you probably should, should, should read. It's, it's a wonderful book. So he roomed with Angelo Peruzzi at Juve. And he would wake up at night sometimes and he'd see Peruzzi would go into his drawer where he'd hidden like salami and like cheese from his hometown and he stuff. He played hide the salami with Paolo Di Cagno. Exactly. Um, and he'd be kind of, you know, and he'd sort of be, be munching away and Paolo would think it was hilarious and Paolo obviously being very supportive and constructive towards his younger teammates would, <laughs> would be like, ha ha, you lard ass, what are you doing? Um, Peruzzi was a fantastic keeper though. Because he had those incredible reflexes. Right. Um, you know, and today we're used to keepers who are sort of tall and, and rangy, you know, the, the Ter Stegen, De Gea type prototype. But Peruzzi had tremendous positioning and he had tremendous reflexes. You know, what he you know, maybe couldn't do is jump, you know, 10 yards up into the air. And, and that's why often he would, he would punch it away. But he was, a, he was a great goalkeeper. And he's one of those guys who I think a lot of people really know their goalkeeping in Italy thought like, well... You know, if we could have made him more svelte, he would have been the best keeper in the world. Right. There's some debates about that. You get into biomechanics. The guy was just built differently, but he was much, much loved by his teammates and I think a really underrated goalkeeper in many ways. Mm. Anyway, Juve, who, by the way, wearing that classic 90s European strip, the the blue jerseys with the the yellow stars on their shoulders. Always love that one. Uh, Raining chances in on the other goalkeeper, Van der Sar, who will... In years to come, himself turn out for Juve. He spends a couple of seasons there. But as as the game wears on, changes are made. Jugovic comes on, the vastly underrated Jugovic. Yeah. Patrick Clivert comes on for Ajax. Delivio's on for Paolo Sosa. And there's just pressure and pressure and pressure. Del Piero is having one of those finals that he often used to have, having chance after chance. And indeed, about 30 seconds before the end of extra time, just gets the perfect opportunity. He absolutely lashes the ball in and... Van der Sar just kind of, almost kind of sucks it into his belly. I don't know quite how. He just kills it dead it was, with his midriff. Yeah, that was one of the most uh, uh, unorthodox stops that you're going to see for, for, for Van der Sar, but also very brave. And what's interesting, too, I think, for, for Van der Sar is that season, the year before Van der Sar had arguably been the best goalkeeper in, in Europe, that season he'd had some ups and downs. In fact, there was even some people suggesting that his backup goalkeeper, who I'm going to name check here just because I love his name, Fred Grimm was, you know, maybe, maybe he should get a shot and whatever else. But I thought Van der Sar really came up big then. Del Piero wasn't the only player missing chances. Gianluca Vialli as well. There's a comment from him afterwards. I'm not sure if this is something you, you talked about with him. He said that that night I was more nervous than any of my teammates because I'd played in the mm. what was then the European Cup final in 92, Sampdoria against... Uh, Barcelona, and he missed a crucial chance in that game, which would have given 
Sampdoria, the European Cup. And that was Wembley. his and that was his last game for Samp and he was aware of it and he felt that influenced his performance. And once again this was his final game for a team because he would be leaving Juve that summer. That's right. That was the one where the situation where as as Luca puts it, they approached him before the final, his contract was up. Who did and the triad? Yeah, the evil triad of Antonio Giraudo, Roberto Mettega. And the most likable of the three, according to Lapo Alcan, Luciano Monti. And they said, oh, yeah, you're great. Yeah, no, no, don't worry. We'll get the contract done. Sure, yeah, don't worry. And as Luca puts it, they gave me an offer, but it was the kind of offer which said to me, yeah, you'd best leave. We don't really want you around. Um, and I think he really took this, he, re- he really took this very personally because you know, he was the team captain. You know, he delivered the title the year before in 94-95. He would go on to, obviously, know this at the time, but he would captain them to a European Cup. And he felt that he had put a lot on the line when he left Sampdoria to come to Juventus. And he came to a different Juventus, a Juventus that was pre-Moggi and Giraudo and Bettega and, and these sort of characters. He would have stayed. He would have, He was ready to stay. But in those conditions, he felt he had to go and... And, of course, he ended up going to Chelsea, who he would then manage. And for a while, be the most successful manager in Chelsea history. Until, of course, the special one rolled into town. But that, of course, is a story for a different time. For another time. Because we've got some penalties to talk about. Oh, yeah. They start with Edgar Davids for Ajax. Oh, no! And then all sorts of penalties get scored. But Ajax miss another one. And then up steps Vladimir Jugovic, who's one of the coolest operators around. And he's got that half... This kick, it's down to him. Are Juve going to win? Can they seal the Champions League with this kick? He just walks up with like a half smile on his face and, and bangs it straight past van der Sar, who guesses right, but there's no stopping that one. And Juve had champions for only the second time in their history. Yeah, and obviously the first time in their history was was Heisel, which I think for, a, for for many reasons, and it's easy to say after the fact, and obviously there was a lot of hypocrisy there. But you know, this was this was a victory, you know, on the pitch, albeit via penalties, but it was a victory on the pitch, and it's not something that you know came in a match which really should never have been played. 1996, and they've still yet to add. Another one. They went back to the final the following year and the year after that, 97, when they got beaten by a Borussia Dortmund side. Now featuring... Lars Ricken. Now featuring Paolo Sosa, I was going to mention, but yeah, sure. Yeah, by the way, in some ways, it's pretty remarkable what, you know, for all the stuff, all those people who go and suck up to Luciano Maggi and talk about, oh, those guys were so smart. And you know, leaving aside all the Calciopoli and all the dubious stuff, right? They let Paolo Sosa go. Who was player of the season that year, wasn't he? Yeah, and they let Gianluca Vialli go. And then, yeah, sure, you reach those two European Cup finals, whoop de hoo and you won a few more things. But then you also kind of entered into that weird death spiral where the Rome teams won, won the titles and whatever else. And just to say, it's not like everything that they touch was gold. And, no. then, and then, of course, they signed Zidane, who would deliver Serie A titles, but come up short in Europe. 97 against Borussia Dortmund, 98 in Amsterdam against Real Madrid, a 1-0 defeat uh, with Predik Mijatovic. Ravanelli leaving that summer as well, going to Borough. Extraordinary for about £7 million. 
which was a lot of money back then. Right. Vialli went to Chelsea, Sosa to Dortmund. In their place came the likes of Zidane, Boxic, the young Christian Vieri. Eventually, Edgar Davids turned up after going to... It was the following season, I think, Davids went to Milan, was it? Yeah. And that didn't work out. <laughs> Ran Billy into Co- Fabio Capello. <laughs> right. And also Billy Costa-Curta, who didn't get... It wasn't Costa-Curta the guy who came out and said he's a bad apple and he'll spoil the whole bunch. I think so. Billy always very, very forthright with his opinions. But I think in many ways, though, Davids wouldn't have fit that Milan team and what they were going to do. And I think also Capello was kind of like, all right, I can't deal with this guy. Because, you know, we remember old Davids and how good he was. Young Davids had his issues, too, of a different kind. Yeah. One or two incidents in the street in Milan, outside nightclubs, that kind of thing. Yeah, and sequestering himself away in hotels and things like that. Right. If 96 marked a watershed for Juventus, it was the same, only more so for Ajax. In December '95, we'd had the Bosman ruling, which allowed European players to transfer on a free once their contracts were up, which nowadays is completely normal. But before that, you were entirely beholden, players were entirely beholden to their clubs. Even once their contract had expired, the clubs would still regard them as, as part of their assets. So for a club like Ajax, Bosman the way I understood it, hit them particularly hard. I mean, they they lost their entire squad within a couple of seasons. Yeah, I think there were different forces concurrently at work. Obviously, players suddenly had a lot more leverage in contractual negotiations and, and, and whatever else because the prospect of leaving on a free transfer meant that Anybody who had any kind of market could just go and say, all right, you want to you lock me in so that you can get a big transfer fee when I go? Fine, that's going to cost you a lot of money. So that really raised costs for a lot of clubs. Remember, Ajax at the time, they were still at the old stadium, uh, De Mer, I think it was, before the Amsterdam Arena had been built. That was part of it. But the other thing was the limits on foreigners, which in Holland were always pretty loose, but because they, they were lifted entirely elsewhere... That then, and obviously in England they were very loose, but in Spain and in Italy, you know, they were pretty strict. You could have three guys playing on the pitch. That then created a a situation where clubs like Real Madrid and Barcelona and Milan could just go and stockpile top foreign players. And that obviously eventually made them better because the pool of players they could pick from were much better. And so it became tougher and tougher for Ajax to compete. What Ajax did, which I thought was kind of neat, and, and they tried to get around it. Uh, they said, all right, well, we're going to turn Bosman to our advantage. Right? We're going to get really creative in our, in our scouting. And this is often forgotten, but Ajax spent a ton of money for the time and for Ajax. A lot of the money they got from all the players they lost on sort of superstar 18-year-olds. Uh, one of them, of course, being Christian Kivu and the other one being Slatan Ibrahimovic. They kind of blew their money early thinking that it would work out. And... And it did to some degree, but you still had Bosman, and it, and it just became very difficult for them to to compete at anywhere near the same near the same level. Right, well, they've never been back to the Champions League finals since. Although they did make the semi-finals the following season, '97, when they were put out by Juventus. The other story from the '96 final, one that indeed came up when the draw was made for this year's uh, quarterfinals, was the the notion that Juve had an unfair advantage in that game. There is some evidence indeed there was even a court verdict that Juve between 94 and 98 had a criminal plan to affect games by the illicit use of pharmaceuticals now this court verdict was given on the 29th of May 2007 it so happened 
that the statute of limitations had seen the event in question actually expire in terms of being a valid criminal charge on the 1st of April of that year. So it was exceptionally good timing from Juve's point of view. But this this really, in the noughties, was the other big Juve scandal. You had Calciopoli, which happened in 2006. But relating to events back in the 90s, you had the whole scandal about the doctor, the man who the triad had appointed as club doctor, Ricardo Agricola, and, and what he'd been doing with players. A lot of suggestions that they'd used blood doping even. What do the Juve players say about this? Naturally, they get pretty defensive about this from, from Zidane to, to Vialdi. They were all called to testify. To a man, they say that, you know, they weren't aware of anything. You know, when they took a whole bunch of supplements, um, which is pretty standard for professional athletes, you don't know what's in them. Um, they also felt that during the trial, and there's video, I think, I think Zidane getting really annoyed about this, because at one point they asked him, like, you know, on or around September 17th, uh, 1997, Mr. Zidane, were you given 120 milligrams of blah, 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 and 16 milligrams of blah, blah, blah? And he's like, you know, this is like four years later, he's like, how the hell am I supposed to remember that? You right. know? And they felt that it was a very punitive, vindictive thing, which really put the players out there. I think, you know, having covered this a little bit in the book I wrote with Gianluca Vialli, I think when we report on this stuff, there's still a general sense from the population. They get bored with this very easy, quickly, right? They just think, oh, look, magic pill, take pill, is cheating. Right. So, bad dopers. I don't think even Agricola would dispute this, is that you've tried to gain an edge by whatever combination of pharmaceuticals that, that they could get. Right. right. They were careful. Creatina was, was, was named. Creatine, which was not, but, but, that, but that, wasn't, that wasn't a banned substance, mm, right? Yeah. That was, and, and if used improperly, that ended up just making you fat. Right. Um, so, you know, they, 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 they used prescription medications when maybe from an ethical perspective, they shouldn't have been taking them. But what they would point out was that A, they never failed a blood test. Yeah. B, based on their own blood records, um, I think there were three players, Delivio, Duchamp, and one other, who had levels that were suspiciously high, uh, and the others did not. Now, the other thing is, these were Juve's own records, which they kept. And Juve's defense has long been, well, wait a minute, if we knew we were cheating, why would we keep blood records that showed that we were cheating? Why would we keep this evidence? So there's no question, I, I think, that they certainly violated the spirit of the law. Uh-huh. Uh, whether they violated the letter of the law, to what degree they gained an unfair advantage, you know, that's stuff for others to, to figure out. Right. I mean, Lance Armstrong always used that defense. I never failed a blood test. But it was certainly the perception in the 90s that Italy actually had among the tougher anti-doping regimes, certainly tougher than the kind of checks that were applied to English footballers. Yes. Very few people were testing properly back then. And But Italy, to a large extent, were, were, although there were then subsequent scandals about what had happened to all the records at like Aquamarcia, where the a lot of the, 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 the By testing the way, of all the testing facilities in the <laughs> world, would you send it to Aquamarcia means rotten water? Like, yeah, that, that's really where I want to go and, and send my medical <laughs> The other The other thing to say, uh, from Juve's point of view, is that they did seem to have an extra gear compared to other teams in those days. But the reason that a lot of people pointed to, and certainly they pointed to, was the Marine. Yes, Giampiero Ventrone, um, whose assistant, Antonio Pintus, then later became a fitness coach at, at Chelsea and, and is now at Real Madrid, actually. 
they said, look, we trained better and harder. We had more athletic players, and we sought out more athletic players. Mm -hmm. And and again, I mentioned those guys before versus versus Ajax's players. You know, Antonio Conte, if you remember him as a footballer, and Didier Deschamps, those guys were simply better athletes than Yari Litmanen and Ronald De Boer. It's not, it doesn't make them, the other guys were, were better footballers. You know, there, there was a trade-off. They right. went for this kind of, this kind of approach. Physicality. For, yeah, for, for, for physicality, for, for athleticism, for, for stamina. Mm. That, that was what they believed in. Do you know what? That was 1996. I'm sure there's a bunch of other things we could draw from that, but there's been a whole load of things that have happened in this year's Serie A competition, which we should touch on. So we'll be back to talk about that after a little bit of this. Right, Serie A this weekend. I'm going to go quick fire on you here, Gab. Boom. Juve didn't win the title. No, they didn't. They ended up... uh, uh, It's that stage of the season where I think arguably the only uh, starter that they would have had out there was, I think, the Chilio. They played Spa. They didn't even play that badly. They played four dudes who I think most people would have never heard of unless you happen to be related to Gregorios Castanos or that ridiculous Nicolucci Caviglia guy. Yeah, it was or, his English player as well. Oh, yes. Steffi Mavididi, mm-hmm. yes. It's readers of the Young Gunners blog will be very familiar with them. Uh, they dug way deep. They said, ah, let's throw out the scrubs. It, it annoyed other teams because they lost 2-1 at Spa. Spa, of course, theoretically in the relegation race. I don't have a problem with Allegri's decision making there. You know, you earn the right to be in that position. But equally, it kind of makes what happened on Wednesday when you know, when he comes out and says, well, we look tired. I'm like, uh, yeah, because you had a whole week off. Maybe that's why you look tired, whereas, you know, mm. Ajax only three, four days off. All right, well, if you enjoyed that, Gab, what did you make of the fact that Kievo are now relegated? Oh, it's fantastic. I, I'm, I'm glad. I hope they never I hope they never come back until they get a proper president who starts following the rules. 3-1 defeat for the Flying Donkeys. Uh, away at Napoli, uh, the relegation situation. Napoli bouncing back after a disappointment at the Emirates, of course. That's true. Frosinone are almost down. Looks like being between them and yeah. Empoli. Frosinone, though, giving yeah. Inter a scare. And, yeah. and this is the, the, this is the other, like, I don't know. All of a sudden, Inter afterwards, they reacted as if, like, oh, look, yeah, everything's fine. Nothing to see here. Look, we're third. Ha <laughs> ha. You know, look, Spalletti's getting the job done. Like, I think the main thing to cheer from that game, if you're Inter, is the fact that Perisic and Icardi seem to be buddies again, mm-hmm. or they can contain themselves at least long enough to go and embrace in public. Lautaro Martinez seems to be a valid option up front. An alternative. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Frosinone playing really well. Okay, I, I but they're still very much looking in the hot seat for a trip down to Serie B. Empoli also in trouble. Bologna as well, only two points above the drop. Udinese is three points by, but they have a game in hand. Then you've got Genoa and Parma. Hmm. Udinese, uh, like Bologna, benefiting hugely from a change in manager. Mihalovic coming in at, at Bologna. Igor Tudor. Igor Tudor. At uh, Udinese. Bologna holding Fiorentina and their new manager, Vincenzo Montella, to a nil-nil draw in the... I'm going to call it the Derby of the Apennines. Is that fair? Yeah, they're the, the Derby della Variante di Valico, which is... Uh... Stretch of motorway. <laughs> Samp won the Derby della Lanterna, 2-0. There's a surprise. Yep. Uh, oh, Dzeko scored for the first time at home in the league for almost a year. And a big win for Roma. Two wins in a row. The old guy's getting it done. First De Rossi and then, uh, and then Dzeko. It's weird because he's, he's been playing Dzeko and Schick uh, up front. 
And so you figure out what's the best way to provide service to them. And he's not able to do it. The good news is they're not conceding as much. But it's, um, I always think back to, you know, it's the old story of the blanket. That's either, you know, you either you pull it up and then you're nice and cozy up front, but your feet get cold or mm. you, you have nice warm feet and then you freeze your nose off. Shorter players, that's the answer. Exactly. Okay. Milan beat Lazio 1-0 in a largely forgettable game, I'm going to say. On Saturday? Forgettable, apart from Lazio's whining oh, and whinging at the well, end. Yeah, which... of course, the end. So, Kessie scores the penalty. At the final whistle, there's a Rissa. There's a proper set-to between both sets of players and various people from the bench and that kind of thing. But that all gets calmed down to the extent that players swap shirts. In the week before, Chadby had given an interview where he says, you know, and, and okay, we should go even further back. So Francesco Chadby is a guy, one of those Italian guys who... Everybody loves because he's a super nice guy. He's intelligent. He speaks well. You know, he beat cancer as well. Twice, I think. Of the testicles. Cancer right? of the te- Yes, a testicular cancer twice. And he's somebody everybody likes. And he gave an interview where he was maybe a little cocky. And he said, yeah, well, I think, you know, in every area of the pitch, we're superior to Milan. I think we're going to win. And then Bakayoko came back and sort of uh, needled him and said, oh, really? Well, we'll see on the pitch. It was a bit of a back and forth on social media. Everything's fine, and Lachette beat the final whistle, says, let me swap shirts with him because I'm a nice guy. And that's fine. And then Milan go to celebrate under the curva where their ultras are, and Kessie and Bakayoko, Tweedledee and Tweedledum, decide to go and hold up the shirt they just got from a chair to be point to it and laugh. Ha 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 ha. Like a trophy, almost as if they were ultras and they yeah. seized the flag from the other end. The natural thing to do at that point is what I would have done if I'd been a chair to be is I would have taken um Bakayoko shirt, sorry, let's say, oh wait, let me drop my pants and uh and go and wipe my butt with it and leave it here. Seems. Right? Since this is the level um there was a whole to do, a chair to be got really upset afterwards saying that this foments hatred I kind of think the whole thing was really badly overblown in the sense that, no, it was not a classy gesture from the two of them. Milan apologized afterwards. Mozakio and others tried to, to calm them down. Equally, though, that doesn't foment hatred. That's just, that's just kind of being stupid. That's what you might call spithousery in this country, James. Would I call it that? Well, some people would. I'd, I'd term it banter. Bants, yes, yeah. mad bants. But there was a whole other thing that went on just before that ah. because there were several refereeing decisions that I think they were all correct. And, you know, even at the end, Ricardo Rodriguez on, on Immobile was was correct. And uh, the referee, Gianluca Rocchi, I think is a very good referee. There's a massive scuffle at the final whistle. Lucas Leiva, former Liverpool star Lucas Leiva, he got into trouble. And I think he's been fined, although he's appealing it. Because was this Ugo Levy that he had? A this guy? is Ugo Levy. Now, for those who don't know, Ugo Levy is a guy who he may still work in Milan's press office. I don't I know. I believe so. I didn't know. He was back in my day. He was there. He was the well in the sort of the general melee. He I don't know told people to calm down because he somehow got involved. And basically, Lucas Leva is alleged, uh, and he denies this to to say to him, "Sit down and shut up." Ugo's a big guy and he's in wheelchairs. So you can tell he's in a wheelchair, so maybe the sit-down thing isn't, you know, I, I think if you just necessary. leave it to the shut-up, yeah, not yeah. not not really necessary. But I don't All think right. Lucas Leva was mocking him. And I should point out, Lucas Leva denies saying this. That was certainly an eventful weekend. This coming one, as the relegation battle draws to a climax and the same goes for the top four places, Inter are taking on Roma Saturday night. That's going to be huge. Yeah. It's usually a good game as well, Inter... Inter against Roma. Napoli Atalanta could well be an excited one. Oh my word. Saturday before Inter kickoff against Roma, Juve taking on Fiorentina. Vincenzo Montella, only his second game in charge of La Viola, 
and one of their biggest fixtures of the year. I'll say this. Juve will obviously win the title, but if you look at Juve's running, it's actually a really tough running. Well, it's funny you should say that, Gab, because this weekend they're at home to Fiorentina, then they travel to San Siro to take on Inter, after which, my word, they got the Turin derby against Torino, a Torino team who are doing pretty nicely, thank you, surprisingly, under Walter Mazzari. They follow that up with, oh my goodness, a trip to the Stadio Olimpico to take on Roma, who may or may not be a worthwhile, valid, ongoing football team at that point. They finish the season with Atalanta... <laughs> <laughs> and then it's their bogey fixture. The last day of the season are Sampdoria, the team who always take points off Juve. So, look, they need a point to mathematically secure the title. But I'm looking at that run. Where's it going to come? Well, it's, it's funny. Imagine how exciting it would have been if some of those earlier results of the season they got away with hadn't gone their way. And Juve need to metabolize this trauma and move on very quickly. Because if Fiorentina win this weekend and Napoli beat Atalanta, all of a sudden you're looking at a 14-point gap. But it's not. That, but that, that's not the point. It's going to happen. They will get a point there, hmm. but they're down and out psychologically. And you know Fiorentina don't want Juve celebrating in their house, right? So you're facing all these games where people will be motivated to beat you just to twist the knife, and you're playing pretty good teams along the way. So it's extraordinary run the, the whole season could end with a series of ugly draws, right. you know, defeats and stuff like that. They've and already blown the Coppa Italia and the Champions League. Could the Scaletto be next? Do hope you enjoy it. It's all available in the UK on Premier Sports, of course. Or you can join us next Wednesday when James Horncastle should be back with us in the flesh. And uh, we'll be discussing some other random bit of Italian Horncastle history. Castle incarnate. Mm. Nice. Wow. All right. He will rise again and become flesh in fulfillment of James Richardson's words. That's, yep, that's what's going to well, happen. If, yeah. he had, if he had a beard, he'd look yeah. more like Jesus than either you or me, right? But not more than Moreno Torricelli. No. Anyway, listener, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Gabriele Marcotti and producer Charlie. For now, from all of us here, it's a Rivadurci. You've been listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. It's a Muddy Knees Media production, and for sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Check out our other football shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audio Boom, and everywhere else you get your audio on demand. <laughs>